Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. While other kids were reading, you know, the normal stories that people read in their childhood, I was looking at pictures in this book called Paradise Lost to Paradise Restored. And it was like the birds eating the flesh of these people. I had these little friends on the block and there was a little girl that she was like my little girlfriend. And I was thinking, how how could God, why would he kill her? So there was something in my mind that defied my logic at five years old that only Jehovah's Witnesses are going to survive this massive destruction. It just doesn't seem like love to me. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today we have Edwin Young. Edwin grew up in the Jehovah's Witness community. He was well-spoken and knew the community inside and out. By the age of 20, he was an elder. In the new role, he was exposed to corruption happening behind the scenes. He felt conflicted about what he saw, but the final straw was the death of a friend associated with the church. He initially attempted to take a step away, but was eventually left with no choice but to leave the community entirely. Leaving the church meant losing all of his friends and his family. He was suddenly exiled from everyone he loved and began drinking heavily to deal with it. What followed was 20 years of struggling. Today, Edwin has found sobriety through Lion Rock Recovery. He's found a community of people who support him and connect in ways he'd always craved. He's currently working on a book that tells his story and works hard to help others find healing. It is amazing to talk to people like Edwin who have such a strong conviction that they are willing to leave everything they know in search of something better. I have always battled thinking that if I didn't know what something was or what was going to happen, that it was had to be bad. And so I always chose the devil I knew. In this scenario, we hear about a man who made a different decision and what that looked like and how he learned coping skills and then eventually found sobriety. I love that he got sober online. I love that he used Lion Rock Recovery. I'm so proud of the program that we have worked so hard on and the people who made it possible because all of it is about the people. Please listen to Edwin's story and support him with his book that will come out. It will be in the show notes. It has visualizations and explanations around what addiction looks and feels like and how to be in recovery. So without further ado, I give you Edwin Young. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Edwin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Very, very glad to be here. Very excited. Very excited. And I was actually just talking to my husband who grew up a Jehovah's Witness and uh, asking him for any details about uh, what... Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So he he's my go-to. I've never 
interacted with anyone else who uh, was Jehovah's Witness until I met him. So very excited to chat with you about this topic today. Tell me a little bit about your sobriety. Okay, when it started? Yeah, yeah. Is how how long like have you been sober? Well, my third year will be October 8th. Yes, that's I amazing. went into uh, the Lion Rock Intensive Outpatient Recovery Program Yeah, in 2020. And that's when things turned around and um, I'm enjoying the life. Oh, I love to hear that. Thriving. I love it. I love to hear that. So you grew up a Jehovah's Witness. Yes. What is I was that, born into the faith. You were born into the faith. What is that life like in the early years? What was it like for you? Well, where I grew up, um, where we you? lived in Brooklyn. Okay. I was in, in uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, New York. And that's where the headquarters right. were. So the way I would describe it growing up, was it reminds me of the movie with uh, Jim Carrey, The Truman Show. I was in a beautiful world. It was great because it was the leaders of the organization. They were coming to my parents' house. Uh, it's the only world I knew. So I was glad about a few things. One, I thought I was never going to die. Beautiful. Great way to grow up because I thought that the world was going to end and I was in the perfect place and time that this paradise earth and eternal life was going to be restored to mankind. I was just going to live forever. It was busy because we had five meetings a week and then additional Bible studies in between that. And my dad was, he was what was called the uh, assistant congregation overseer. That's the way it was called back then in the seventies. So one person was in charge of the flock, as they would call it, or the brotherhood. And then there was an assistant. My dad was the assistant. So he was a really good public speaker. He was uh, very captivating in the way that he could present material and, and interesting. And people looked up to him. He was charismatic. But he had an anger management problem. And so that made my life difficult because there was paradox going on. Two different worlds. One was in the kingdom hall, which would be like the equivalent of a church, and then the other was at home. What he would perceive as discipline easily turned into physical abuse and beatings, and it was a relentless. So in one way, I loved my dad. We had fun. We did good things. But then in another way, I thought, hmm, something's wrong with the picture here. The other thing was that thinking that the world was going to come to an end, And the way that we were taught was the leaders weren't saying that it was going to come in 1975, but they were alluding to it. So as it, as it turned out, my father didn't put any money away. There was no retirement. He he was still hanging drywall, walking on stilts at 82 years old because he was shocked that it didn't happen. There was also a gloom because while other kids were reading, you know, the normal stories that people read in their childhood, I was looking at pictures in this book called Paradise Lost to Paradise Restored. And it was like the birds eating the flesh of these people. I had these little friends on the block and there was a little girl that she was like my little girlfriend. And I was thinking, how how could God, why would he kill her? So there was something in my mind that defied my logic at five years old that only Jehovah's Witnesses are going to survive this massive destruction. It just doesn't seem like love to me. So I always had that in my mind. 
So when I was 10, they were already grooming me. Like maybe I'd be a leader someday. And mainly it was because of where I was located, because these people already knew me. They already knew my parents. I was a nice little kid. They wanted me to get baptized at 10 years old, which is very, very young in that. Right. It's supposed now, once, to be 16, right? Uh, it's not a, It's not per se an age unless like the rules change all the time. So I'm not sure what they are now. But it was old enough to understand, old enough to be able to dedicate yourself to the religion. Synonymous with God was the organization. So the only way that you could commit yourself to God was to commit to the organization. You couldn't do one without the other. So the organization and God was one thing. And Satan's world was everything else. So the reason I use the Truman Show as an example is all my friends, everything all had to do with people that were in the faith. And then anyone else was viewed as spiritually sick. That's why we preached, because we didn't want people to die. Right. Came from a good place. It came from a good place. As I got older, even though I was having these doubts and I was bringing up questions that I had before I got baptized, even at 10, I was told, well, put those things on a shelf. Because the light's going to get brighter. And these were like legitimate questions that I had that really weren't being answered about what love is and how can that be fair? I mean, what if somebody doesn't hear this message? All these kinds of things. So I did get baptized and then I did end up becoming an elder myself. I liked being a public speaker. I liked going places and meeting new people. And if they liked uh, your discourse, they would call you back. They could request you. And there was a lot of really boring, boring speakers. It also got me out of sitting through an hour discourse that I thought was somebody that's very sterile. And he's just, let's turn to Matthew 16, 1. And he's like, oh, it had a twofold purpose. I could have fun and I didn't have to listen to as many discourses. Can I ask you some questions about just my, my small knowledge of the religion. From my understanding, Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate any holidays except for one. My husband went to an integrated school, but because he was Jehovah's Witness, he couldn't, you know, make the Valentines or do any of the other stuff. It sounds like you were pretty insulated. Did you go to a JW school? No, they, they didn't have JW schools at that time. Okay. So, My job was to be friendly, but not make friends. So I couldn't go after school. And a birthday party was escape. Right, right, right. Halloween Halloween decorations. Pass, right. Christmas. Can't take the gift. It was that kind of thing. Did you get? So, did you get like separated? He he was like separated from the school play and set like what, what? Yeah, when I when I moved upstate, I met. She was my first friend in a public school, this girl. We were in the same grade. We were both witnesses, and we would get separated to the library, and we'd have fun. So we we enjoyed being with each other, and we developed a really good connection over the years. But I didn't I didn't take it as, like, I felt like, oh, no, I'm not getting this. I just felt like, you guys are going to die. Okay. You're going to die okay. for this. Okay. How am I going to tell these people that they can't do this? So like existential crisis for you as a kid. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And um, no flag salute. You know, they're saluting the flag. You have to stand, but don't put your hand over your heart because your allegiance is to God, not to a nation. You got to be neutral. You can't vote. Basically, no part of the world, no voting, no nothing. There's like, they don't want you to be, quote, worldly. Is that worldly? Worldly, right? Yes. I learned that's a real inside term. I have so, I had so many. The inside terms are worldly and the truth. Okay. The truth is, is what 
we would say to each other, he's not in the truth. He's not in the truth. Right, right. Okay. He's not in the truth. So they don't, so and they don't want you to be worldly. What's, what's the Jesus's, um, the memorial of, of Jesus' death. Memorial. Was in, in, okay. Yeah. Our Easter. Right. It was, it was the equivalent of Easter. And that was, that ceremony was kind of odd. I always thought that ceremony was odd, even as a child, because the only people they would pass wine around and the only people that would drink the wine would be a small number, which would be, which would equal 144,000 people in total since like the beginning of time till when I was there. And so if you saw somebody drinking the wine, it was like, whoa, he's anointed. He's going to heaven. He's one of the anointed and everybody else. We would just pass the glass around. It didn't. Okay. So this part blows my mind. I, I don't know if anybody, I, I, my dad's Jewish, mom's Episcopalian. I went to Catholic school. My husband grew up Jehovah's Witness. So it's, we're all over the place. But the, 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 the thing that blows my mind and for people who don't know who might find this interesting, the 144,000, that number represents people had to hear a message from God that tells them that they're going to heaven, right? Can you fill us in on That's exactly. the, the blank? And they wouldn't really talk about that because like I said, the people that I was like I was, most of these people didn't have children. So they were all in, in, in the headquarters, which was called Bethel. And so a, a little kid was like fun for them. And I'd be like, how do you know you're going to heaven? Yeah. How do I know I'm not yeah. going to heaven? And they're like, well, if you are anointed one day, you'll know, but how come you don't want to talk about that? Like, how do you know? Oh, they didn't talk. And about I could, it. they didn't want to talk about that. It was a very personal spiritual thing that was for themselves. And there was a few people that I thought, I think she's lying, you know, or he's lying. <laughs> I would tell my husband all the time, I go, wait, you mean to tell me it's a self-report to heaven and you just tell them you were anointed and then that's the deal? And he goes, yeah, not only is it self-report, but they passed, surpassed the 144,000 in the 70s, apparently. Yeah, that was one of my questions as a child before I got baptized. I'm like, but there's a certain number in, from the beginning of time. How can there still be people left? Well, you'll have to put that on the shelf for now. It was that kind of thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, so who are you people? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember one time there was a lady that came in. It was in Brooklyn. And she came in drunk from right off the street. And she just, she I'm anointed. <laughs> Love her. Love her for this. So you said, um, so you became an elder and it's very interesting listening to you talk because I have spoken with my husband and his family and his parents and his father's still very much in it. Mother was like, I'm out of here. On the fence? Um, oh, she left. She left. And so I've, I've asked a lot of questions, but what's interesting about your story is, and I wonder if it's proximity to the headquarters, but as a kid, you were really conscientious about and really concerned about the people around you. Whereas the people I know who grew up were really pissed they didn't get to make Valentine's and really pissed that they felt very othered. That was, and it's interesting in the way you describe it is you were really concerned about the people around you. While it may end up being the same problem, it does create a different outlook on life. And I think it's, it's, it's a different, it does. it's a, because that happened to me when I left, when I left, I wanted to do every single thing because at that point 
I thought, okay, I guess for a brief time period, I was probably an atheist, which I'm not now. But still, organized religion is, is a turnoff for me personally for that, probably because of that. But I wanted to do every single thing that was against the rules that I could do. So I invited my brother over, who's 10 years younger than I, and I bought him every single birthday gift <laughs> From the time that he was a baby until he grew up, I'm smoking cigarettes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. I wanted to see, a, I never saw an R-rated movie. So my sister-in-law, I was like, I want to find the worst movie you could possibly. What was so it? What was, was it? It was a porn movie. Oh, well, yeah, was, okay. It was just like quaint. It was it was like a comedy porn movie, okay. and it was in uh, 3D. So I'm like, okay, you know, I got my 3D glasses on, and I'm watching all this stuff. And then uh, you went I'm from Dumbo to, think, to porn in a movie theater. Yeah, That's you know, good. I mean, I was I was I was aggressive. I went through an aggressive phase, and it was probably due to you know the aggression that I had at home. So I was that guy in a bar that you you wouldn't want to be around if he had too much to drink. Right. But I, I was never an instigator. But if someone bothered or said something to my wife or one of my friends or... And then I, it kind of leveled off to where I got back to me again and I got back to my own self. You know, the biggest problem was just harboring animosity. Like it took me... It's very recently. I mean, even during early stages of recovery, I still held animosity because how do you feel when you're a dad and you're... 16 year old daughter calls you up and says, Daddy, I can't talk to you anymore unless you want to come back into the religion. I mean, that was horrible. Well, let's, horrible. so let's go back because I want to get, I want to get into that and I, I want to okay. go a little more chronologically. So you, you become an elder. What, what are some of the things that you see behind the curtains? Cause you're very conscientious about other people not dying and you're very concerned. Like, how could God hurt this little girl that's my friend? I saw some disturbing things. What did you see behind the curtain as an elder in your twenties? One of the most disturbing things was a little girl came up to me and she said, my dad is looking on his computer at pictures of children without their clothes on. I don't know what I should do. And I was thinking, what? Now, this guy, I didn't really like him personally to begin with, to be honest. He was very confrontational, very aloof, and he didn't have my trust. And he wasn't an elder. And so when I approached some of the brothers, which we would call each other, about the problem, that's when I learned more about what the two witness rule meant. Oh, tell and me that everything. is something very, very disturbing. Okay. What's um, two witness rule? The two witness rule means that if two people don't acknowledge a crime, it didn't happen. So you need two people before you can approach this person. So there isn't a normal legal system. Like even if someone got raped, I found out about something later on after I left, what had happened to a girl that I was very good friends with. And this girl was raped so many times that she lost her memory from age 17 beyond. But in this case, well, we don't have two witnesses. We'll see if we can find out if his wife knows about it. So now I approach the guy's wife and say, this is what your daughter is saying. And this is, this is really serious. And of course, yeah, yeah, was she gonna? She's not gonna. No, there was one witness. And so what happens is that there's no, you don't, you can't take a brother to court. You're talking you about religious court or criminal court? Well, in other words, anyone in the religion cannot take another person in the religion to a court of law. Out, okay, okay. Civil, legal, anything, anything. Okay. criminal, anything, okay. nothing. So think about what crimes could be committed that's all handled. Nobody calls the police. 
So I, there's a rule that I may not totally understand. If you could help me with this, from my understanding, there's a rule where if you do something bad, if we are both Jehovah's Witnesses and you cheat on your wife with Sally, and I know, because Sally's my friend and she tells me, I am now as culpable as you and Sally are because I kept the secret. Do you know what That's rule correct. I'm talking about? Um, there isn't a defined rule. Okay. At least at the time that I was there. Yeah. What is that? Whole but let's thing? let's say this, um, a more defined example yeah, of what yeah. you're saying. If I did something wrong, let's say I cheated on my wife with Sally. Okay. And this committee of three elders decides that I'm not repentant because if I was repentant, I would have came to them and told them what uh, I did. Ah, uh, okay. It's about getting caught. Okay. It's about getting caught. So now I'm disfellowshipped. Right. Which means nobody talks to you. You're off the planet. You're off planet Earth now. They say, no, that's not really true. It is really true. It is really true. Nobody talks to you anymore. I mean, not even in the store. You're not even allowed to say hello. Not allowed to smile. But what about the person now, who knew about it? Even if you weren't the person who knew about it, if you were caught saying hello to me oh. in the local store, you're out. So not only if you knew about the crime, but if you, talk if to you the didn't criminal. adhere to the rules of the shunning, that's it. So there would be examples of, let's say, a mom. Let's say she left the organization and she was lonely. And she just was alone and she missed her grown daughter. And she called her up on the phone and said, I just want to say that person is not, if you're caught, you're out, you're disfellowshipped. I mean, you're going to have a meeting. At first they would warn you. Yeah. Okay. So and be very soon. And I saw a lot of, a lot of heartbreaking situations like that. Now, someone who is disfellowshipped, it's okay if an elder talks to them, if they come to the meeting. So if somebody wanted to work their way back, they could go to the kingdom hall. Everybody ignores that person for as long as the committee decides. So if somebody didn't like you who was on the committee, they have to unanimously agree that this person is repentant. And that's not just saying, I'm sorry. It means you got to sit there and you got to, you got to really show that. But, but an elder is allowed to talk to these people. And so I was an elder and I was also an attendant, you know, just to make sure everything is safe and make sure people have a seat. And so I'd see these people come in and it was breaking my heart, seeing people that I knew and like, grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. Or just seeing someone that their lives are so shattered over what? And I just encourage them, you know, and try to make them feel better and see them shaking and crying. And it's like, you know, meanwhile, I'm encouraging them to keep going because I'm an elder. You're doing the right thing by coming back. Yeah. 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 But I thought this is really bad. And this is really bad. You know, one of the things that I also think is... (laughs) wild. My husband fell deeply into alcoholism in his teen years and was not baptized, had not chosen to get baptized. My husband had not, he's a teenager falling into alcoholism, had not gotten baptized and, but did some like questionable things, whatever, got in trouble that were in and around the JW community. And so my husband's father, he was publicly punished. Reproved. Publicly reproved. Publicly reproved. Yes. Yes. He was basically, he was punished because they couldn't punish my husband because my husband, who was a teenager, was not in, it was not baptized. And so instead, 
they punished his father and who is is and was very committed and he i think he's worked his way i don't think he's an elder but i think he's worked his way back but it felt like it felt like not middle school in the sense of like childish per se but just there's so many ways to get in trouble like there's just so much so many ways and so many ways and so many reasons when my when my husband and I first started dating, what I noticed about his behavior, and I had no context for it, but sometimes he would not tell me about something so stupid. He broke the ironing board or something. And instead of telling me when I asked about, hey, have you seen the ironing board? No. He, in his mind, he was going to just buy another one and I'd never find out as if I, as if that mattered. And it was really, there were like little things like that. And what I eventually came to understand was that he grew up in a world where it was so much better to keep your seat. Like you did, you did everything you could to avoid accountability because accountability was poisonous and the punishments were poisonous, even knowing. And so it seemed like it created this culture of it's better to do anything, try to fix it, anything, blah, 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 than just tell the truth. I can imagine how that affected him in that way. It affected me in a different way. Tell me about that. I didn't hide anything. And I'm still that way. Even alcoholism, I didn't I didn't hide it from anybody, my wife, anybody. But how it affected me relates to what you said about your husband, because the male is like the dominant species of this religion. Now, I don't think, at least at the time that I was there, that the dad would have been disfellowshipped for that, but publicly reproved. And it would be based on if he ticked somebody off when he was talking to somebody on the committee. He ticked somebody off. It's very easy. Like you could really, there's a lot of power. And some of the people were on a real power trip where my motivation, because something in the back of my soul was telling me this is wrong and moving up the ranks was to take that power away from those people who were hurting people that I love. It's interesting. And it's a, it's a commentary that you lived in, you know, the greater New York City area, one of the most worldly places on the planet. And yet you describe it as like the Truman Show, right? Like in my head, right? When I think of New York City, even in the, 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 the religious communities that do exist, the little enclaves. To me, I would think that there's only so much sheltering or, or isolating that you could even possibly manage in New York. And yet you can isolate and you can you know, you can create this little community or big community of people who are doing exactly the same thing and, and, and keep them from each other mentally while living in this very diverse city. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty wild concept to think about. Like you can mentally separate people at that level in such a populated, diverse, religiously, politically, all the things community. Wow. And what you're saying is so true, but take it a step further. You can mentally separate people from a family member, from your mother, from your daughter, from your sister, from your dad. You can mentally separate people where they believe that they're making a choice between Satan's world and God. Let's get into a couple things. You know, let's talk a little bit about the convention, some of the ways in which there was hiding in the community and people were being, people were forced to make really ugly decisions, things that you were seeing, like leading up to you, you're leaving. There are circuit assemblies okay, and there are district conventions or district assemblies and they're annual. Maybe the circuit assembly might be twice a year sometimes. 
people from a certain region, a number of congregations, whatever is is designed for that region, will attend this convention, which sounds like a nice idea. All your brothers and sisters, you're going to meet people from different congregations. If you're a good speaker, you might get a little spot, you know, a little glory, you know. (laughs) We would look forward to it. And every year we'd go to the convention. But when I was 17, it was time for the convention. And my dad was having some financial problems. So I had my dog was my best friend, my dog, Duchess. And we had another dog, Peaches, which was her daughter. You know, and I'm a big animal lover still. So this is a bit of a sad story, but it'll, it'll make the point. So it's time to go to the convention. And although you, we weren't forced to go to the district assembly, nothing would happen to you if you didn't. But people would start asking you why you didn't go. And you'd see people who would be on a convention and talk about what they went through to get there. Mm. Someone might have had financial problem and they still made it. It could have been someone who was a wife who had an abusive husband who said, I'm going to beat you up if you go there. And she still went. Or someone that was threatened. uh, They started a new job and the employer says, you know, I'm going to fire you. You know, you don't have time. So it was pretty much there was pressure on you. You you need to go. (laughs) You need to go. Got to go. You got to go. We had the funds to go to stay, but my father didn't have the funds to put the dogs in a kennel. And we couldn't find anybody to watch the dogs. We had already moved upstate New York at this time. We were living in uh, the Catskills. So my father says, well, this is going to be a chance where you could show your faith in Jehovah. You know, that's what they call God, Jehovah. We had a four-day supply of dry food and a four-day supply of water for each dog on two eight-foot chains in two dog houses. It was a sweltering day when we left sweltering. And I did everything I could to make sure that they could not get tangled with each other, that they could reach the water, but anything could happen. Anything could go wrong. I went to the convention and that was the moment when I said, something's wrong. I should be back. I should be staying here with these dogs, but I didn't. And so when I went to the convention, day one, I already had an ulcer, which I still have problems because of that one ulcer. It was really bad. I developed alopecia. So at 17, that exact convention, I was combing my hair and was just coming out in clumps. I was nauseous. I was upset. I was anxious. I wasn't even coherent. I didn't care what anybody was saying on that platform. All I cared about was I left my little friends alone. What's going to happen? Every day got worse and worse. So we go to the convention. I come back. It was a horrific sight that I saw these two dogs with the two water containers knocked over, the food over, and the one dog, which was my best friend died of complications a few days later. The other dog survived. And I thought to myself, you know, this is my fault. And that's where I started carrying around that blame and that shame and that guilt. But I also was carrying around an animosity, thinking that I'm going to make some changes when I make it to be an elder. It didn't dawn on me. How about leave now? Maybe at that age, I didn't have the nerve to leave my family. I'm I'm not really sure what was going on in my head back. But leaving is a big, I mean, leaving, we we spoke with a woman um, not that long ago who left the Amish community. I mean, leaving is, it's not just leaving it's everything it's it's dying and being reborn it's it is it's a whole thing so i mean it's understandable that people would find a way to try to stay to try to make it work what were some of the other things that kept happening that sort of like started piling that you were seeing it's kind of like when a bomb strikes close to home it's different than when you're seeing it happen far away so that was one bomb that 
struck close to home to my heart. I had this friend. His name was Dave, and he was five years older than me. We had growing up. He had three brothers. You know, he was he was really cool, but he was kind of out of my league in in the friendship world because I was twelve. What's what was he seventeen? He was 17. So one day I went over to see one of his younger brothers and he bought a drum set and he didn't know how to set it up. Or I was like, that's going to be really loud. You know, <laughs> he's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, his parents were strict. He's like, well, I'm going to, I'm only going to play when nobody's home. And I'm like, you know, I actually know how to play the drums. I've been playing the drums since forever. I could teach you. Anyway, I ended up giving him drum lessons and he was so appreciative that he decided to give me tennis lessons. And so now I'm riding around in this guy's VW bug and I've got this like older friend. I could go places. My father trusts. We developed a real bond. That bond continued to when we were married, when we were both in business. And he was a person I greatly, greatly admired and looked at as a, as a, as a fleshly brother, not just in the religion, you know, and he started having problems problems. He was an elder too. And the first thing that happened to this guy is he was coming home from work one day and he struck a child with his truck. And this poor kid was disabled and it devastated him. He was ruminating about what if I had done this? What if I had done that? He just couldn't get past it. At the same time, he was a really good businessman. These elders started putting pressure on him about money that he owed people. And meanwhile, I knew how many people this guy helped out financially, never told anybody. He was going through a rough spell. He was doing everything that he could. One thing led to another, and who knows what the contributing factors are that all lead to a suicide. And I was just devastated. Just absolutely devastated. And it affected a lot of us in different ways. And so I just said, look, I want to be left alone for a while now. I want to be left alone. I need some time to think. And so I knew I was going to leave the religion mm. at that point. Interesting. At that point, I knew it. And the only thing that was holding my marriage together was the religion. And in the marriage, my wife and I didn't get along. But my wife, she loved me and she didn't want me to leave. Where I had kind of already fallen out of love and moved on, it was the religion holding us together. So she was thinking, oh shit, if he leaves, we're done. So I wanted to be left alone. I had a music studio that I rented and I kind of moved into that studio and I just wanted to be left alone and it was relentless. People from the religion, we just want to see if you're okay. We just want to see, you know, are you coming back to the meetings? What's going on? I know that was really hard. I know that was, you know, one of your best friends, but, you know, it's not anybody's fault. And I'm like, people aren't understanding what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that I need to be left alone. And what was happening to me is the PTSD was out of control. I was getting panic attacks where I would just drop to the floor for 15 minutes at a time with a raised heart rate, gasping for air, chest pains. And I didn't know when they were coming on. And I was in a really dark place at this point. Like I was ready to make a move. So while this was happening, someone came by and told me, you know, they say that you're, someone's saying that your creativity and that, you know, your artwork and your music is, is from the demons. Maybe it's the demons that have a hold of you. And I'm thinking, if there are demons, I'm I'm the bad guy with the demons because I write music and I like art. Not all the things that I saw that led to this guy's stress level getting to a point. So I showed up at the Kingdom Hall. I was really angry. Naturally, I've learned a lot in recovery. <laughs> so I kind of made a scene and went downstairs. And when I finally was talking to one of the elders in private about you know how I felt and what was going on, at the last split second, I kind of flipped the tables on them. Instead of trying to defend it, I said, you know, if it's true that my creativity comes from the demons, 
and it's true that Satan's an angel of light, what about this building? What about all the artwork that's in your kingdom hall? Because they believe that if you take something from someone, an object that comes from a person who's possessed or demonized, you bring them into your own home. You bring them, they flipped out. Think I could see the tables would turn. There was nothing wrong with that building. That building was remodeled. I did a lot of work on that building myself. I'm not saying that the building was knocked down because of that statement, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm thinking it. (laughs) I am thinking it. Wow. And I left. And at that point, I was resolved like that. This is it. So I committed the worst crime that any Jehovah's Witness could commit. It's worse than celebrating a birthday or a holiday or cheating on your wife. Me leaving the organization meant to these people that I choose Satan. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Ashley here. As many of you know, I got sober at 19 after going to many treatment centers. And years later, when my aunt passed away as a result of her addiction, my father and I and our business partner, Ian Crabb, started a telehealth company in 2010 called Lion Rock Recovery. We started with a PowerPoint and a dream, hoping to help people overcome barriers to treatment like affordability, accessibility, and privacy, which we were able to create in this program that we started. Today, Lion Rock Recovery, our little PowerPoint, treats people all over the world. We have over 200 clinicians, and it's an amazing program. We have an intensive outpatient program that has so many different time tracks to fit into people's schedules and specialties like professionals group, LGBTQIA, trauma, and many, many more. We are able to help people anywhere in the world with any schedule, and all of it can be done privately. This is our dream come true, and Lion Rock Recovery is available to any of you who have family members who are struggling or if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody. Our admissions team is there around the clock for a free phone call, also a live chat on the website. There's so much there that we've worked so hard to bring to you. Please check it out, lionrockrecovery.com, or you can call the 800 number, 800-258-6550. Thank you so much. So you leave, but that means you left your wife and your family and and all of that. What was the feeling of leaving everything behind? What happened was I thought about it for so long that I almost pre-grieved. Is it possible to pre-grieve? I pre-grieved it. Yep. So I was expecting, I already imagined what it would be like if I left. And so when it happened... I was pleasantly surprised that I was still standing on my own two feet. One by one, I mean, after I left, mysteriously, 22 other people left within the year of that sink, which was like a world's record in one small congregation within a year left. That's why they knocked that building down. They're like, it's building coming down. <laughs> bad, bad seed. <laughs> Stay away from me. Drywall is from the devil. Okay, so to me... It makes sense that the drinking starts to pick up at some point because you have an impossible thing to cope with and all of the skills that you've learned are from the thing that you've left. And so how do you how do you even make sense of that? How do you cope with that? What were some of the coping mechanisms you had when you left? None. I had no coping no coping skills. Zero. And when I went into recovery, it was like 
it was the first time I had even heard another way to think, you know, and I had pretty much a whole list of cognitive distortions just rolling around in my head all the time. I was, I was very distrusting. It left me very apprehensive. My radars were off to anything that could be hypocritical or phony, but that just built walls around me, which contributed to the drinking. My drinking increased drastically when I realized I couldn't see my daughter. The realization of that definitely had a lot to do with it. You leave when your daughter is two. You leave the religion, you leave the marriage, you leave the life. When do you start drinking? I always drank. Always, okay. I probably always drank too much. In in our culture, it was Italian-American culture on my mother's side of the family. I was, I was drinking wine at a very young age, but I would binge drink. It started with binge drinking. Like we did a few jobs, you know, that were out of town and I was in the Bahamas. A lot of out of town jobs where I would just be, there's nothing else to do but go out and drink. So it would be, then the binge drinking became more binge drinking. It was related to my panic attacks a lot too, because I didn't realize that it was cycling, perpetuating those panic attacks to be more and more and more. I just thought, oh no, I'm getting worse. So I was drinking more to make up for it. And then through time and just addiction setting in and that monkey brain taking over, then it was just out of control. But I was functional. In other words, I left my profession of a decorative plasterer and I wanted to work in the school system. So I purposely became a school bus driver, purposely started working for the town, and I purposely started to fill my schedule up with anything that wouldn't be drinking. So I wasn't one of these people who had DWIs or came to work. We had random drug and alcohol tests. No, but I've managed a way to abuse the substance around, which took a lot of coordinating. Yes. Took a lot of coordinating. Project I'm a very good coordinator. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Put that on your resume. There you go. Yes. I should do that as a supervisor to say, you know, I really mad. I'm good at time management. I mean, I ruined everything that had to do with any events or anything that had to do with my home life. You know, so even though I'm making a joke out of that part, I deeply regret how my family had to endure when that became out of control. Because at that point, it was if I wasn't working, I was drunk. And that could be seven o'clock in the morning. And I, I and I didn't hide things from my wife. I didn't. So she was very sad. I could see her how she was starting to wilt in a certain way. Like I could see I could see that everybody was feeling this dark cloud over my family. I tried everything, everything I could possibly do on my own and landed right on my back. I think the problem was I was trying to control the substance and not quit. So like Cindy would take these vitamin water bottles, which were like 16 ounce bottles, and I'd fill that up with wine and I'd be, okay, that's going to be my ration. They say the great obsession of every alcoholic is to control and enjoy their drinking. We, right. can, we can usually like do that. one or the other, but... Wow, I like that. Yeah, we can't, we can't typically do both. I was talking to someone recently and we were talking about the phenomenon of in your mind going, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this while you're pouring the alcohol. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. Oh, I got to stop this as you're drinking the alcohol and just this, this feeling you are drinking again against your will. It's the, it's just, yes. it's the worst Horrible. feeling. It's the worst, it's the worst feeling. feeling. And everyone's like, don't you love me? Won't you, you know, stop? How, how come if you loved me, you'd stop. And you're like, I wish I could explain to you the crazy in my head and how this is, but it doesn't, it, it's like, you wouldn't believe it if I said it. <laughs> so exactly. You described it a 100 million percent. That's exactly. I felt horrible. 
horrible. And love for my wife, love for my family, motivation wasn't enough. I needed technique. I needed to learn coping skills. I needed to learn things. And that's why I'm so grateful for having been in that program because I saw the turnaround. Like, I'm back. Eddie's back. What, what, <laughs> um, what was your turning point? What was the thing that made you say, okay, okay, I'm willing to do a program? I had a, a few false starts because people talk about hitting bottom and I thought I did. And then it got lower and lower and lower. So my wife, Cindy, she's very fit, personal trainer, going on these long bike trips and all this stuff. She was diagnosed with two different forms of cancer and there was no cure. It was experimental treatment. So I thought, you know what? And I drank more. I took her to Sloan Kettering to the city and I drank even more. And then a miracle happened that she was okay. And I thought, this is my way of saying thank you. And I drank even more. I've always felt this this connection with a higher power, despite religion, not because of religion. And that connection was a part of me my whole life. And when I left the religion and it was still there, I thought to myself, wow, this means something to me that this is not based on what I was taught. This is part of me. But when I started drinking heavily, I kind of walked away from that. I left that connection because I felt what I'm doing is wrong. I'm a bad person. I was ashamed of myself. And so I stood away from that. I need I need to fix this and then I can re-engage that connection again. But when I finally gave up and just locked myself in the bedroom upstairs and just started praying, saying, you know, man, I need help. I, I need you back. Can't do it. Boom. There was something that clicked in. And one thing my family will tell you, if you ever met him, is I don't think I ever broke a promise. And I never once promised that I would ever stop drinking. And I called my son upstairs and I said, I'm going to get all the help that I can get wherever I can get it. We're going to go on vacation and I'm not drinking anymore. That's it. In retrospect, I asked Cindy, did you believe me when I said that? And she said, God, no. <laughs> she said, but she just, she said, you were so excited. Yeah, yeah. She, said, you, she said, I didn't want to like burst your bubble. She goes, because I thought she was thinking, you know, he's, he's on the right track. He's right. going to get out. Right. Why, why crush it? Meanwhile, I was going through detox. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know about detox. <laughs> Did you even know you needed detox? Because sometimes they don't they don't even know what they don't even know they're addicted like that. Terrible things happened to me on that vacation. One of them was I was driving Cindy home from the restaurant and Zen, my son, and I lost all coherency and cars. Cindy's like, what's wrong? She's ready to grab the like, I think I need to get out of the car. I don't feel right. Was that a red light? Was that what's going on? She's like, stop, stop. Oh God. Oh God. I mean sweating and like this like oh it was disgusting i mean i do it felt like the flu on steroids but i just thought you know what's going on what's happening to me but as soon as i said to cindy that i was going to get help she was like okay, okay so you know she was really pushing me along so what do you want to do you know you want, it was right during covid i called line rock and i spoke with the representative and this woman the fact that she was in recovery like surprised me and she was like oh i, I know what you're going through i've been there i'm like really like i thought i was the world's only alcoholic the world's <laughs> only addict i'm oh, the only one terminally just me. unique just baby. me it's all about yeah, me the yeah. Truman show i love it so I'm like you too both of us? Yeah. Can you and I went, what are the chances? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Are we, 
So then the issue was the panic attacks. Right. right. Like, what if I have a panic attack? And Cindy said, well, it's online. So, you know, you can black your screen out. So I went to the one-on-one counselor and he was like, he was very, very understanding about it. He said, you know, I could stop. I said, if I don't drop to the floor, I'm just going to freeze. Right. Okay. So I'm like, so I really don't want to go to a group. I just want to do just this, but the program's the program. Yeah, I was yeah, in yeah. the wheel Everyone now. Everyone says so, that. Everyone. Yeah. And I realized that in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, now yeah. I'm like, now what am I going to be doing in this group? What do I want to possibly hear from other people who also dug themselves into the same hole that <laughs> yeah, I dug? Right, right. Like, well, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not helpful. Yeah. No. You know? And, oh, God, that's funny. But it took it took the group counselor about... 30 seconds to win me over. 30 seconds, I was smitten. I was in that group. I'm still in touch with the people in that group. And I, I felt the love. I really did feel the love. And I wasn't afraid if I did get a pat. It didn't happen because I was so comfortable. Meanwhile, the one-on-one counselor, because the group therapy was going so well in the recovery, he was just hammering the PTSD and tips and things. I haven't had a panic attack in almost three years. I mean, it became like I was hunting around for all these things that would be triggers and... <laughs> Right, of you know, course, of course. My father was even helping me in his old age. He was helping me hunt triggers that were caused by him. So they came full circle. I've talked about this a lot and I, I do like to get this out there because my life changed. It has changed from group therapies. It is the most powerful tool and surprisingly, and I love all types of counseling, but group therapy is incredible. Why would you describe group therapy as such a positive experience in terms of learning skills? For one thing, sometimes part of this disease is lying to ourselves, right? Like they say, the man who wore so many masks, he doesn't know which one fits his face anymore. And I was committed to be totally honest, but I still wasn't completely honest with myself yet. And so sometimes somebody else would say something about their life or about how they were feeling. And I would think, yeah, I feel that way where I wouldn't have been able to to do that on my own. The other advantage was the feeling of not being alone manifested. Okay. I'm really not alone. I know I'm not alone, but now I can see people who maybe I'm helping one of these people. Maybe I'm helping two of these people. Someone's helping me, but I'm helping somebody else. We're all supporting each other. You've got that feeling of love that's circulating and it's building this, you know, you've got accountability because in the beginning it was rough. You know, I mean, I'm an emotional minded person. I had to learn how to mix that. If there was a chart, I was all the way on the emotion side. So my cravings were like a 10 in the beginning. It was like a nine or a 10. And I think, well, I don't want to let these people down. You know, I felt like my part was like, well, maybe it's going to discourage somebody else if I give up. And it didn't take very long before that little bird, which was me, was flying. And I was, I was okay. And I was a strong member of the group and seeing somebody else that started new and then they became a strong member of of the group. And I'd say the, the council, the particular counselors were perfect for me. Perfect because they were authentic. And with the culture that I came from, I'm very skeptical. So the authenticity, the genuineness of the compassion and the concern really reached me and it motivated me. And it made me say, you know what? 
I don't need these walls. These walls are coming down. I carry that with me in life. I don't need those barriers anymore. It's interesting because we build these, we build these, this security system, right? These walls around us to protect ourselves. But if you yourself are toxic and you're the only one behind the walls, you are going to suffocate from your own toxicity. And by letting the walls down, you can let fresh air, new ideas. But we have this idea that the only way to protect ourselves is to keep other people out because it's the only skill we have. So we're going to use it. If all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. Recovery is this opportunity to realize, oh, I am, I'm poisoning myself. Great. You know, this is not protecting me and that there are other skills that actually can protect me because there's nothing wrong with protecting yourself from toxicity. You just have to know how to do it correctly and identify it. What is something that surprised you about recovery? That it worked. (laughs) Yes. Great one. Yes. That's, that's a big, a big thing that I think about a lot. Because when I was a kid, you know, there's bullies. I was this anemic, skinny, frail, until I met some bigger friends who liked music. I was scared and I got bullied. You know, the kids, sometimes the kids would hijack my bike as I was going to the grocery store. So I used to read comic books and I saw in the back of the comic book, it was Charles Atlas, Dynamic Tension. And they show this picture of this really muscular guy and he's kicking sand into the face of the weakling. And I'm looking at the weakling going, that's me. And so I saved up the money that I'd make from the neighbors going to the store and I bought the Charles Atlas Dynamic, which is a great exercise that I still do to this day. (laughs) But anyway, so it's muscle against muscle and how to use your body. And I'm doing this for months and I'm waiting for the biggest bully because I'm like, dynamic tension is going to change the game. And so pick the biggest one out of the crowd as the aggressor and realized it didn't work. So when group was ending, we were in a group meeting and I, I expressed that to the counselor saying, I haven't been stress tested. It's COVID. I haven't had any tragedies. I don't want this to be like the Charles Atlas dynamic tension where am I just going to crumble under pressure? I don't feel like I am, but I'm being honest now. And so honestly, I was saying it's going to have to prove itself. I'm going to do my part, but is the program, what I'm learning is, can it hold up under stress? Well, my father passed away suddenly from COVID, took him in three weeks. Um, Then my uncle died a month later, two months later, and things started happening that were bad. And although I grieved and although I was sad and although I experienced the emotions without hiding behind a bottle and things are bigger when you're not sedated, they appear larger than they are when they're bad. I had to acclimate to that. But when I realized that it worked, I was motivated beyond my wildest imagination that if I had never had a problem with the substance, I would have never have learned these ways of thinking. And I would have been, I would have been a real dark, negative person. I really would have. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I say like, I'm not who I am in spite of addiction. I'm who I am because of it. Well, you, I just adore you and our time together. And I'm so grateful that we got to meet and that you have found recovery and that, you know, I got to be a tiny part of that. What a cool experience and to hear how that worked. And yeah, I just so impressive and, and such a brave, you know, when I talk to these people who have a similar experience, who get up and leave a life that they knew for something that they don't, because it's just not the right thing for them. And they know something's better. It's such a Courage. It's such a different courage than most of us will ever experience. It's really impressive. And, and I hope that 
anybody out there who is listening, who's going through or feeling something similar, holds on to this story and your experience and just follows it because it's it's clear that it's given you this amazing life. And I'm so happy for you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.